You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke 9, 37 through 48. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciple to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among us All is the one who is great. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would understand this truth, that those who are least among us are great in the eyes of you. We pray that we would understand these things primarily because we understand the humility of Jesus who has lived and died on our behalf. So we pray that you would make clear to us your word tonight by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, tonight is a lower elementary night, so if you, are, if you have already checked in and have a sticker on and want to head out with some of these teachers out here, we'll see you back after this service. You parents can pick up your kids after the service in their classroom. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you this evening. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I would love to meet you after this service. Uh, meet you even maybe this week or the next for a lunch or coffee or something. We're glad that you are here this evening with us. Uh, I'm glad. This has been a great week. Uh, It just follows around the corner. I wasn't necessarily expecting it to be so cool this week. I know it's like mid-September and it's supposed to be that way, but I was not prepared for lower 80s and it was wonderful. Uh, So sometimes the things that we don't expect are the best things. Like I was not expecting low 80s this week, and it was just the best surprise. Uh, Sometimes the things that we don't expect are the worst things. Like when we hype up a vacation or experience, like this thing is going to be so great. This meal, this movie, this concert is going to be so great, and then it disappoints. Like that is a, that's a, that's a bummer of a time. Or like, you know, you're looking for a house to buy, and the, the pictures on Zillow or something look amazing, and then you walk in, and you're like, oh. Or like an Airbnb, you're expecting a great vacation because of this awesome place, because of the way these pictures looked, and then, oh. Uh, 
Sometimes it's not about something overwhelming or underwhelming your expectations. It's just that you don't actually know what to expect. You interview for a job that you know nothing about. You stop for lunch in a small town on a road trip that you know nothing about. You visit a church that you know nothing about. First time visitors, welcome. You know nothing about what to expect. Well, here we are, but we don't know. You don't, you don't know what to expect from us. In some way though, a flourishing human life is about understanding and managing right expectations. Many of you are now two weeks into the marriage core class that meets just before this service in which Paul Tripp titled a book and his marriage talks, What Did You Expect? What did you expect for marriage? That is, what did, did you expect marriage to be like a conflict-free romantic comedy in which the person that you married, perhaps unlike you, isn't a selfish sinner? If so, marriage will actually disappoint and underwhelm your expectations. Growing and, growing and maturing and flourishing marriage, marriage is actually about recalibrating right expectations, to not be surprised by sin, but then having a plan to deal with sin as it inevitably happens. Well, our expectations for the kingdom of Christ and our expectations for the Christian life are actually very similar. If we have wrong expectations about who Jesus is and what he has come to do, then we're going to be disappointed when our expectations are not met. And very similar to what Kyle has already said tonight, we did not like prepare uh, and go over this entire service to make sure that we've been saying the exact same things. He has said the exact same things. Uh, if there is a problem that we experience in discouragement, in disappointment, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. And this is something that Jesus' disciples had to learn over and over and over again, and it is a lesson that we need to ongoingly learn and relearn as well. So we're going to look at three short stories today by asking three questions of them. Three questions. What did you expect? Why did you expect it? And then what's the alternative? So first of all, what did you expect? Last week, we thought about uh, the transfiguration of Jesus, that is the transformation of Jesus. When Jesus was revealed and showed his divine nature, Jesus is not just a good teacher or a piercing prophet, he is the God-man. He is God himself, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is, he is shining the divine light on those who are in his presence. And a voice came from the cloud, we saw, saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. Now, the next three vignettes, and actually beyond, but the next three that we're going to look at tonight are Jesus' teaching. Listen to him. Jesus is speaking in confrontation to the words, the actions, the intentions of the crowds, and more pointedly, to his disciples. So now, the disciples actually, actually get an opportunity to put into practice what they heard from the voice from heaven. Listen to him. There will be a lesson for his people, and this will be a lesson for his people and what it means to listen to Jesus and to obey. So here we are in verse 37. Verse 37, where Jesus, Peter, James, and John have come down from the mountain, presumably after the, the nighttime transfiguration of the night before, and as they are coming down from the mountain, a man runs out in front of, to, in front of the crowd, crying out to Jesus to come, come look at my son, his only child. Now, Luke loves to point out when a parent comes to Jesus with physical concerns of their only children. 
In chapter 7, we saw the widow of Nain crying out to Jesus after the death of her only son, whom Jesus then resurrected to new life. And in the following chapter, chapter 8, Jairus, whose only daughter had also died, Jesus then comes and brings her back to life. And now here, three chapters in a row, seven, eight, and nine, parents with only children in death or in impression are coming to Jesus. This is a theme that Luke loves to prime and to pump that is obviously going to go somewhere at the end of this story with another only son. But here, this man's son is experiencing the seizure of an unclean spirit. This is the third time in Luke that Jesus has confronted demons in their possession of people. Now remember, if you were with us back in April, remember when we were in chapter 8, when we saw Jesus free the man of many demons and the demons went into a herd of pigs, and we thought about then that demons are unseen spiritual beings who, in following their Lord of evil, who is identified by many names in the Bible, like Lucifer or the Satan, literally the accuser, Beelzebub, the prince of the power of the air, or the dragon, the serpent, etc., etc., many names. They're in following him. They, before the creation of humanity, they rebelled against the good wisdom and authority and provision of God. And in a spiritually parallel rebellion as ours, as humanities, the demonic realm seeks to live its existence apart from the authority of God, instead making up new norms, new norms of reality, new rules for themselves as they go. And it's in that sense that the demonic realm, or as Paul regularly calls them, the powers, it is in that sense that the powers subtly and ongoingly influence humanity. They use power to Uh, encourage us, to influence us, to live our lives just like them outside of the good wisdom, the authority, and the provision of God, outside of his authority and instead under our own. And then even from time to time, with less or more than subtle influence, but with more direct influence in what is called possession or even demonic ownership. And it seems here that this boy is experiencing perhaps what we might think of as epileptic seizures or something like it. That's not to say that the gospel writers were like superstitious and they just didn't know about epilepsy or something. These are ancients who don't know about modern science. But since this boy goes into a seizure, when the very moment that Jesus approaches and when Jesus immediately, Luke's words, rebukes the spirit, we can assume that there is real demonic power here at work in the life of this boy. And yet, the word that Dr. Luke uses is that Jesus healed the boy. He healed him. So it could be that this demon is perhaps exploiting the epilepsy that this boy is legitimately suffering from and just making it worse. Matthew and Mark, when they tell of this story, they say that he goes into seizures and the boy is like, when he goes into seizures, he's falling into fire. He is falling into water. This is dangerous and scary stuff for this boy and his father. But just like in all the other stories of the demonic in Luke, this is not a scary story when Jesus is present. Things are not scary when Jesus is there. Kids, this is not a scary story. Why is it not a scary story? Because Jesus is here. Not in the slightest bit this is scary. Jesus is stronger, Jesus is better, Jesus is wiser, and Jesus is more powerful than anything that exists in the world, and we can trust him. David says in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, you know what he says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in him. What a good verse to memorize and remember for the rest of your life, that when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Jesus is worthy and capable 
He's worthy of taking our trust and doing something with it. But here's the point of this entire story. In verse 40, the father tells Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. The dad can't do anything for this demon. The dad can't do anything for his son. And the disciples, presumably the other nine who weren't on the mountain the night before, also couldn't do anything for the boy, which we might expect, right? Because remember, Jesus is more strong. Jesus is more powerful uh, than anything out there. Nothing is scary when Jesus is there, but Jesus is not here. The night before, Jesus is not there. He is on the mountain. So when Jesus is not there, we can presume things are scary when Jesus isn't there. But go up to the very top of chapter 9. Remember, many months ago when we went through this, when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples in verses 1 and 2, what did he say? And Luke tells us he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus has delegated his heavenly authority over the domain of darkness here at the beginning of chapter 9 to the 12, and next chapter, in chapter 10, he will delegate his authority even more to 72. And if we jump ahead to the later in this chapter, other people are casting out demons in Jesus' name who aren't in the, in the 12 or the eventual 72. The power of God and the strength of Jesus to push against the darkness, to speak truth, to speak light, to not cower in fear. The power of God, the strength of Jesus is present in those who speak in Jesus' name. And if you were with us in our Ten Commandments series a few years ago, thinking about why it's such a big deal to take the Lord's name in vain, this is not just saying an OMG or something. This commandment and speaking in Jesus' name is really about wearing the name of Jesus, like a, a name tag or a sash of belonging to Jesus and operating under his delegated authority. The disciples are to, in Jesus' name, in his delegated power and authority, wearing the power and authority of Jesus, they are to go out and operate just as Jesus does. And so when Jesus says in verse 41, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? What's he saying? What's he confronting? He's directly quoting here from Deuteronomy, where Moses calls a twisted generation, a crooked generation. He calls them that because they have abandoned the law in disobedience. Here, there isn't necessarily something immediately clear that the people are disobeying. It's not clear to us. This seems like a pretty harsh overreaction, perhaps, from Jesus. It doesn't seem like they're disobedient. They've abandoned the law. If anything, this is a scared and desperate father of a dangerously ill or influenced child. But Jesus' question reveals his heart in this confrontation. He interrupts and he says, how long am I to be with you? This anticipates his resurrection and his ascension, and it also anticipates something like 1 John 4.4, where John writes, you, you Christians, are from God and have overcome the world. For he who is in you, Jesus, is stronger, is greater than he who is in the world. If Jesus is in you and you in him, then you have his power over death and darkness. And so, what does it appear that the crowds, what does it appear that his disciples were actually expecting here? It appears that they were expecting to just kind of sit back with their feet up and just watch the magic show. There's nothing we can do down here where, while Jesus is up there. There's nothing we can do about this. All we can do is wait for him to return. 
And then when he returns, that now it's great for us as his disciples, as his followers, to follow closely behind him, but then just watch him do his thing. In the same way, what are we expecting? What are you expecting from Jesus? I think too often we expect to live the lives that we want and then perhaps just expect Jesus to upgrade them. For him to right the wrongs in our lives and in the world, for him to end the injustice in our lives and in the world, for him to end the suffering in our lives and in the world, while being unwilling or lacking the faith to step into those wrongs, to step into that injustice, to step into those sufferings ourselves. Now, I want to be careful here in thinking about the scope of this that we should expect, especially when it comes to physical healing. I do believe that God can and does still heal. I have prayed with many of you over the course of many years that God would do something so miraculous that that doctors cannot explain what he has done. He can do this. We should expect this in faith. The Lord Jesus can and does work through his people, much in the same way as Luke says that Jesus healed this boy, and yet it is not the amount of faith that we have that channels the power of Jesus. After all, Mark's telling of this account, this is the story in Mark's account of of what's happening, where the father of this boy, who goes into seizures and falls into fire and water, where he says to Jesus, I believe, I believe you can do this, but help my unbelief. I'm str- I don't have the faith to believe. I want to, but I don't. And so it's not just if we can just enlarge this channel of faith that there is more power to go through like a conduit. Sometimes it is just a thread that Jesus works through. Jesus, this man's faith is hanging by a, fre- a thread, but Jesus shows himself to be the one who is powerful. Not a powerful faith, a powerful savior, a fa- powerful healer. And so we can always trust in the wisdom. We can always trust in the kindness, the love, the compassion of Christ and however he chooses to respond to wrongs and however he chooses to respond to injustices or sufferings in our lives and in the world. And yet, Jesus expects his people to step into it, to be givers of life and not takers. And the power of Christ that Peter and John and James just witnessed the night before to step into that power, the divine light of God, and with that power to step into a world of suffering and depression, to actually continue to do what many of you are doing so well in the life of our church, to weep and mourn with those who weep and mourn, to organize meals and prayer for those who are in crisis or in need. The phrase has become so trite, but to become the hands and feet of Jesus in extending his love and compassion. How long will I be with you? In this age, in this life that we are experiencing now, he is not presently with us, but he, his body, works and moves to the world and to his people. To speak with the clarity of Jesus about the nature of reality in issues today where our culture is less and less recognizing reality, like gender or sexuality, to not just be his hands and feet, but to be his mouth, which obviously means that we must understand his word in the first place, not just offering our own opinions about things, but speaking the word of God. And what happens when people both see the power of God paired together with the compassionate mercy of God? Jesus is frustrated with his disciples here. He interrupts them and confronts them, but then he says, bring the boy to me. Not out of frustration, but out of genuine compassion. Bring him to me. 
What happens when the power of God is paired together with the mercy, the compassion of God? Verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But when power lacks compassion or compassion lacks power, there is no majesty. There is no astonishment. There is no worship. But in all of those things, we need to look at another side of the coin of this first question of what did you expect? Often we first expect Jesus to just come and do and fix everything without understanding first that he has sent his people to do some of these things. But then he confronts a second misexpectation, second half of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Here's the thing about this entire story. What the crowds were marveling at was not the point. Jesus pushes back on darkness and in suffering wherever he goes. He is the light of light. He is very God of very God. And it is his very nature to right wrongs and to heal suffering. And yet he pulls the disciples away. He pulls them away from this, from, from all of that that he was doing, the curtailing of oppression and suffering. And he says, yeah, all right, that was, that was great. That was important. But here's what I want you to pay attention to. Here's what I want you to understand. Something bigger is happening. What I've done for the boy is important, but it's not the thing. While all these people are rejoicing for the healing of the boy, he says, let these words sink into your ears to his disciples. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus has a bigger and more important mission. If he had just come to confront injustice or to end suffering, he should have taken Satan up on his offer in the wilderness to have all of the kingdoms of the world. Satan would gladly trade all of the emptying of hospitals. Satan would gladly give Jesus all of the emptying of homeless shelters for all of the school boards in America to rightly understand reality, for all of Washington, D.C. to do their job of confronting injustice and to promote human flourishing, Satan would give Jesus all of that if it meant that Jesus would not go to the cross to address the greatest need of humanity. And so to confront a second part of what did we expect, let me again quote D.A. Carson, who once put it like this, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so what did he send? He sent us a savior. And so these two vignettes here keep us from Two ditches, two equally dangerous ditches on the side of the road to keep us from being disappointed by our mis-expectations of two things. On the one hand, one mis-expectation is that Jesus is just going to do everything. That is, now our only job as his people is to just live as comfortable a life as possible in the midst of so much darkness and suffering around because, well, there's really nothing we can do about it. Jesus must act, or we must wait for him to return to act, all the while ignoring that he has sent his people into the darkness. But on the other hand, another ditch, an equal misexpectation, is that Jesus is going to do everything. 
On the first hand, that Jesus will do everything, but then on the other hand, that Jesus is going to do everything. Misunderstanding that the reason that he works and moves is so that his people will come to him to have their greatest needs met, to have their alienation from him reconciled. We've said so many times throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts and elsewhere, that when Jesus heals physically, these are but just pictures. These are external images of what he intends to do internally, of a greater need, of a greater healing. That sometimes he will push back against the darkness and suffering in miraculous ways. Most times, though, he will allow suffering, from small suffering to large suffering, to continue. But in all times, he is good, he is wise, he is kind. He knows, he sees, he cares. One day, and in the age to come, Jesus will do everything, will right every wrong, will end all suffering, will end all injustice, but not yet. And as we thought about last week, it is to that day of the Lord, the return of King Jesus, when he will finally wipe away every tear and he will swallow up death forever, where he will, meet, well, he will seat his bride at this great communal marriage supper of the Lamb with fattened meats and with aged wines. And those are the things that God is uh, preparing us for, and in the meantime, he will continue to place our hope in him. He will continue to allow suffering so that our hope is placed in him and not in the end of pain, not in the end of trial and not in the end of suffering. These are the things that God uses to create steadfastness, to create character, create, to create hope and expectation, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, these bodies who live in this age is destroyed. If we, if we know that the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that is not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Jesus has not promised to end suffering and right every wrong until the very end of the age, until his return. If this is what we expect, for Jesus, for Jesus to just do everything, that we don't have to do anything, we just wait on him, but then that we also mis-expect that he's going to fix everything. Jesus is going to do it all, and we will be disappointed. The disciples, I think at this point, are disappointed. They don't understand it. Their eyes won't see and their ears won't hear until chapter 24. We're at the road to Emmaus when Jesus' disciples begin to understand what the death and the ministry of Jesus was all about, reconciling sinners through his life and death and resurrection. But if this is what we expect, for Jesus to do everything and for Jesus to do everything, secondly, why did you expect all of that in the first place? Why did you expect it? Just one verse here for our second point. The disciples don't understand they won't ask Jesus for clarification, whether because they're too proud to ask or whether they don't, or they know that they won't like the answer. But then Luke gives us a hint what all of this is about in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is just the absolute fundamental flaw of the human heart. Pride. Each of us assuming that we are the main character of the universe and that all others exist to serve us that Jesus exists to serve us. Assuming that our thoughts, our emotions, our actions are justified because, well, circumstances. 
If you just understood, you would understand why I acted or reacted in that way. And yet we aren't willing to make the same concessions or to extend the grace of understanding to others. And what does pride do to our posture before Jesus? It demands that he do everything. I don't want to work for anything. You must serve me. You must do the work, Jesus. And it presumes that he will do everything. He will serve me in all of my wants and my desires. If we're just unbelievably honest with ourselves this week, and I'd actually encourage you to legitimately take some time to think through what I'm about to present to us, to pray, to journal, to talk with each other, to look in the mirror and consider, what do I want from God? What do I want? I think very few of us would feel really confident after like doing some soul searching this week, we'd feel really confident and come up here next Sunday and say, this is what I realized about myself. Because if we're brutally honest, it would probably be just that we want God to give us the stuff that we think will make us happier. We want God to give us the things that will make us more comfortable. It's exactly what Kyle was thinking through earlier as we were about to pray. It, what if we experience the same devastation of North Africa in our own lives? Would we still think that God is good? Would we believe that he is good? Or do we just want the things that he has given us? Remember in Psalm 27 where David says, he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. What is the one thing that David wants? He is saying, here's the one thing in the entire universe that I most want, more wishes. No. How would you answer this question? How would you fill in the blank? There is one thing that I want. If God actually does come to you as the genie to grant you a wish, what would it be? The dream house, the dream spouse, the dream job, the dream vacation, the breakthrough medical advancement, the return of the loved one that you've lost. Well, all of these things might bring temporary happiness, even immense temporary happiness. Then what? For David, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. What is his fill in the blank? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You guys remember the 1979 Russian movie that I told you about? Where there's this room and you enter through, or you enter the room through a hole in the wall, and if you climb through the hole, then you will have your deepest desires met. The room is more than a genie, though, because it doesn't give you what you ask, but what you actually want. And the two characters in this movie are both terrified to go through, to climb through this hole. If you crawl through the hole, when you come through into the room, you have your deepest desires met. They're afraid to climb through because they're afraid of what they might find, that what they actually want is much different than what they think that they want. And so James K.A. Smith says that most of us can probably identify. He says, if I ask you, a Christian, to tell me what you really want, what you most deeply long for, what you ultimately love, well, of course, you know the right answer. Christians, you know what you're supposed to say. You know what you ought to say and what you state could be entirely genuine and authentic, a true expression of your intellectual conviction. But would you want to step into the room? Would you want to crawl through the hole? Are you confident that what you think you love 
aligns with your innermost longings. Jesus knows the human heart. He is an expert doctor who can make the most precise diagnosis and then the most precise prescription. We long for things, we expect things because we expect God and this life to be about my comfort, to be about my self-promotion, to be about more and more of you all recognizing my greatness. But Jesus interrupts the disciples' argument about greatness. They're doing the same thing that every human in all of history has done, about wanting more and more for themselves, about wanting more and more promotion, and he interrupts their argument about greatness with an alternative. What do we expect for Jesus to do everything and for Jesus to do everything? But why do we expect it? Pride. We think that we are the main character. We think that we are the main character of this. We think that we're the main character of the world. We think that we're the, most, we're the main character of this church and of the universe. And so finally, Jesus being the precise doctor that he is, interrupts with an alternative. And what's the alternative? Verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. Now in today's culture, we all know that our children also think of themselves as the center of the universe. Kids, is this true? Do you think of yourselves as the center of the universe? Yes, you do. Uh, we know that, your parents know that, because we remember being your age and being children, and we remember ourselves thinking of ourselves as the center of the universe. Pride is not something that we really have to grow into. It is something that we are all really good at from the very beginning. It is like embedded in our nature as humans. But in the first century Jewish culture, children were essentially ignored until they were about 12 or 13. Not quite the opposite of today, where we actually make our children the center of the universe. Here, they're ignored. That's not to say that parents loved, didn't love their individual children. But there wasn't like daycare or public school. There wasn't PBS or Netflix children special really caring about their education or their emotional well-being. No schools for little ones at all. No emphasis in getting to know children, their names, their concerns, their fears, their needs. Children were to largely be seen but not heard, and actually even better if they weren't even seen. But Jesus, verse 47, knowing the reasoning of the disciples' hearts, knowing their pride, knowing their concern for self-promotion and greatness, took a child and put him by his side. Acknowledging a child really children in general, will not bring you much promotion, will not bring you much social advancement. You know how we've considered before that we tend toward treating other humans in the exact same way that we treat any economic transaction. That we are willing to put something into something as long as we get what we think is a valuable exchange, fair or better. And so we do the same things with humans. If there is advancement for you in this relationship, if you think that I'll help you in wider social so circles, if you think that I am interesting or funny, then perhaps it makes sense for you to put in the time to cultivate this relationship. But if there is a lack of value, if I am not funny, and I'm not, if I am not that winsome or something, then 
well, maybe it's not worth it to put in the time with this relationship. I do this, you do this, we all do this because we are humans full of pride. And children, our interactions with children can often be that. Like oftentimes adults are like, I don't know what to talk about with kids. I'm really awkward around kids. I don't know what to say, and there is really no advancement for me in this. And this is what Jesus says it means to receive him, to follow him. I do think that this has some obvious implications for actual children in our willingness to gladly serve in Christchurch Kids or in Torch or in youth. Not that what we get out of it, but what we can give away to others because of what we have received in Christ. But I think Jesus is more so confronting an actual inside-out dispositional change to all humans. Not, all right, I just read this little two-verse thing here in chapter 9, so I guess because Jesus told me to, I have to start serving in Christchurch Kids or something like that. But by understanding the mind of Christ, and now changed by him coming to me, the weakest, his enemy, someone who had nothing to offer him, and now going to all humans, including the least of these, the weakest of these children, in the same way that he has moved toward us. We, living in like 21st century Western culture, just take it for granted that all humans are supposed to have dignity. That the weak and the marginalized should not be exploited. That there should be justice against wicked abuse of power. But everything that I just said is not an obvious reality. It is not natural. That meaning, it is not in nature. You cannot observe in nature that all humans, all creatures, all of creation deserves dignity, deserves respect. Meaning, all of this, none of this is found in nature and certainly is not true if there is no God. If there is no God, the strong actually should manipulate and exploit the weak. And yet the economy of heaven is upside down. The economy of heaven is not natural. It is supernatural. It is outside of nature. Jesus says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The elevator to glory goes down. And becoming like Jesus not increasing in pride, but increasing in humility. As Lewis says, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That is the disposition of life revolving out of, or evolving out of the, again, I know, I am not the Frodo main character of this story that you all exist for, but I am the Samwise Gamgee story, or supporting character of yours, and yours, and yours, and your stories supporting each other in this assurance co-op, this assurance co-op that we call the local church, and existing for one another, pushing each other along toward love and good works because of the faith in Christ that we have seen in one another, because we have been filled with Christ, now able to pour out to others and not needing to be filled by one another. Again, this doesn't mean that we become a people without courage. We become a people without conviction, without willingness to push back against the darkness culturally and in each other's lives, in our own lives. We need courage and conviction in all of these things. But like Jesus, who emptied himself of the pursuit of personal comfort, of personal advancement, but was exalted where? 
in his death. Like Paul, who poured himself out as a drink offering, and by sharing in Christ's sufferings, that he might know Jesus in the power of his resurrection. Friend, you matter. You, a person with dignity, created by God, known by name, you matter. Your life has meaning and God desires and expects you to walk in repentance and faith. Christian, he expects for you to live and to move in courage, to move and live in obedience because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. You no longer live in a domain of darkness, but you live in his marvelous light. He knows, he sees, he cares for the intricate details, for the intricate and personally felt experienced sufferings in your life. He knows the number of hairs on your head and he knows the number of worries in your heart. Cast all your anxieties on him, 1 Peter 5, 7. Why? Because he cares for you. You matter. And yet, you don't matter. You are not the main character. You are but just a tiny piece of insignificant dust orbiting the solar system of the sun, of the glory of God, a minor, forgettable, supporting character. You're not even Samwise Gamgee. You're some, like, unnamed hobbit at Frodo's birthday party. You don't even get a name in the story. You're so forgettable, all of us. Just insignificant dust. And yet the upside-downness of all of this is the surest and quickest path to joy, to purpose, to meaning, to contentment, of dying to self and living in Christ. What do you want? What do you want from God? If we are wanting the wrong things, expecting the wrong things, you will be disappointed. You will be saddened, you will be discouraged, you will be frustrated, you will be angered at God for not being, not the God who he said he is, but for demanding things that he never promised. And yet, Jesus is going to continue to flesh out what it means to follow him and trust him for the rest of this gospel, and he is calling us now to have life in him. Death to self, the elevator to glory goes down. And less of me and more of Jesus. So let's pray that this week, throughout the rest of this Gospel of Luke, that Jesus would continue to slowly answer that question more and more of what do I want, that fill in the blank of my heart, that hole in my heart, less and less with the things of this world and more and more with himself. That the answer might be one thing that I have asked of the Lord, that I would get more of Christ, that I would dwell in his temple forever and behold his glory. Let's pray that he would help us in this to give us joy. Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray that you would help us to more and more die to ourselves, to more and more get you, to know you, the, to share in your sufferings and know the power of your resurrection. We pray that you would do this by your word, that you would reveal this to us by your spirit, that you would speak clearly to us through each other, with words of conviction and of compassion. God, we want your power. We want to experience it. We want to experience your power in conquering sin and pushing back against evil and darkness and oppression. But God, might we do so with the heart of Jesus, with compassion, with mercy, with grace, with love. 
And we want to be a people of you. We want to be a people of Jesus, wearing the name of Jesus, proudly, not because of who we are, but who he is. Help us to not be ashamed. Lord, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. We pray all these things for Christ's glory and for our own increasing joy that is found in him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.